Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Emily K. Abel. She's Emeritus Professor at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health and author most recently of Sick and Tired, An Intimate History of Fatigue. Emily Abel, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. Glad to be here. So this is a memoir. It's uh, a history. It's uh, There's a bit about your family, so it's a bit of a family history. Uh, it's a little bit of public policy in it. It's of many, many things. But I think we should begin where you begin the story, uh, which after being undergoing the trauma of both cancer and then treatment for breast cancer, you begin to experience fatigue. Could you describe that fatigue and how you sought to find out what it was and then how people began to treat you and your fatigue? Right. I can do that. But first, let me say, I didn't experience fatigue and um suddenly after the treatment, many people get tired during during chemotherapy. What was unusual or felt unusual to me was that the oncologist said, don't worry, after a year, you'll feel much better. But actually, after a year, I didn't feel any better. And um, people kept saying, in, including oncologists, kept saying, you, you must be depressed. So I would go to psychiatrists and they would say, you know, you don't feel, you don't seem so depressed. What you seem is very tired. And um, for a long time, there was nobody who could validate this symptom at all. So it, it, I almost felt crazy because people kept saying, after a certain point, you should feel better. And then, of course, I felt, oh, no, what did I do wrong? So, but finally, um, well, the first thing I did was to um, study um, people who had gone through cancer treatment and reported various symptoms that they were surprised they had. And I did this with a medical sociologist, and we found that people were recording all sorts of things after chemotherapy for breast cancer that doctors had never had uh, just didn't accept. And then slowly some studies came out, and the studies have shown that some people um, even five or 10 years, and for me, it's been even longer, after treatment can have serious um, fatigue. So that was, that was very reassuring, although, you know, you never know if a population study is actually what you as an individual have experienced. But it, it has been reassuring to the extent that I can say, oh, yes, I have something called post-cancer fatigue. Could you describe um, the nature of that fatigue? I mean, that's a bit like trying to describe color to someone who's colorblind. Um, but when you tried to, when you were trying to explain to doctors and psychiatrists what you were experiencing, what would you say to them? You know, that's a hard question because it's very hard to describe fatigue. And it's one thing that I say when I compare fatigue and, and pain, people can't compare, can't describe pain or they find it really difficult. I find it really difficult to describe this fatigue, but I would say it feels more like a mental fatigue than a 
than a physical one, whatever that might mean to people, because I can, um, I, I can, if I feel really bad, sometimes I can take a walk. I just can't relate to other people anymore. So you feel, um, we're going to talk about depression a little bit about which, you know, uh, I don't want to be overly autobiographical, but you bring this out to me and I've experienced major depression and, um, and major depressions as, as you describe. And as I know is almost impossible to explain to people who haven't also experienced it. Um, but is it that, is that, is it the feeling of being um, sick with the flu, the feeling like the run over by a truck, or is it just a dullness, a sort of a, like a cloud over the sun sort of feeling that you or that you're like that character in, in little Abner who always had a little thunderstorm around him, you know? Okay. I did have an ex somebody once described something after um, brain surgery, which was um, fairly minor brain surgery. Although I guess no brain surgery can really be described as minor. And that person said it felt as if there were no more parking spaces in her brain. And that's exactly how I felt that my brain was filled um, and I just couldn't take a, any more stimulation in it. I, I couldn't relate to people. I just had to go to a dark room and be by myself. I, let, another question related to your, your vocation. How did this feel as someone who basically speaks and writes and relates to students and others for a living as yeah. part of your calling. This is, um, this is, feels crippling. This feels. Yeah. Um, it, it was, yeah. it was, it was, you know, after three months after chemotherapy, I went back to teaching because everyone said, Oh, you'll be fine by then or well enough. And it was just agony. I mean, it, I, I could barely get through a class. I worried about driving home. And that went on for years. And then a friend of mine said, well, why don't you um, apply for disability? And I thought, oh, I'm not really disabled. You know, disabled people, they can't walk, they can't do this. <laughs> and, and, and so I thought, well, no, I'm not disabled. But then she finally convinced me, you know, there are a lot of forms of disability. And I did apply. And um I went to my department chair who said, okay, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to go two thirds time and I'll take a pay reduction. And that sounded fine to him. And so that's what I did for three years. And then I went back to teaching and nothing had changed really. So that was quite difficult. Um, I had also just gotten tenure when I was um, diagnosed with cancer. And I was half time in the women's studies program, and they really wanted me to take over um, some of the administrative positions, like um, be chair of the department or run a research unit. And I knew I absolutely couldn't do that. However, what I can do is sit at home and write books. And so that's what I've been doing. I mean, in a way, I'm really fortunate. Because a lot of people talk about brain fog and chemo, uh, you know, chemo brain, and I don't think I had that. Well, let's um, obviously then this, um, as many things, the many grains of sand in a scholar's life eventually, hopefully, become a pearl. So this particularly 
irritating grain of sand began to develop. And um, you chose to discuss talking about fatigue in terms of depression. So let's talk, as I said, I have some experience of this. Um, I, I will note that fatigue, um, I remember I, have, I felt very guilty reading that first chapter because I remember a good friend of mine who was actually behind me in alphabetically at my college. So, you know, as a Zambo, and I feel very protective of people who are, uh, she had um, experienced fatigue, I think, uh, in she had chronic fatigue syndrome, I think it was diagnosed in 1990. And I was really thought, this doesn't exist. You know, uh, it's this it's this thing that can't be touched. It can't be tasted. It can't be. It's just it, it's a symptom that's only you. No one can find evidence of it. What is this yeah. thing? But it would, and I think seem, seem to recall it was. It's a terrible thing to say, but there was a there was a fashionable fatigue moment mm-hmm. in the early 1990s. There there often is. We're going to talk about neurasthenia. <laughs> that that, had, that was its own fashion. Um, where I think Cher had it, Cher had chronic fatigue syndrome, or was it Epstein Barr? I forget which one it was. But there was this, um, there was this moment for fatigue in the early 1990s. Uh, it's really interesting because at the same time, there's ads, public service announcements from Mike Wallace about depression. I remember vividly listening to on public radio, and thinking, yeah, that kind of sounds like me. But you know, I'm not really sure depression exists. We have an overly therapeutic society, which I think we still do. Um, you know, we, everything is a matter of therapy and, you know, maybe, but, but eventually around, you know, by 2001, I realized, yeah, I really did have it, but what's the connection then between, for you, between sort of fatigue and depression, other than, uh, people who often have fatigue are diagnosed at first with depression. I think, you, you know, it's complicated and you bring in chronic fatigue syndrome, which is not the only form of chronic fatigue that there is. So if I say to people, oh, I have a fatigue condition, they always assume I have chronic fatigue syndrome. And um, a lot has happened with chronic fatigue syndrome since the 1990s. I mean, there have gradually, 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 there have been studies that have shown that there are physical problems that do contribute to it. But for a long time, it was considered psychosomatic. And, um, and of course, depression is also psychological. And there is such a stigma about, um, about uh, psychosomatic illness or, or anything related to psychology. And people with chronic fatigue, were, chronic fatigue syndrome were told that they were depressed um, and all they had to do was, you know, get exercise and go back to work and they would feel better. And in fact, they felt worse and worse. And um, I think it's, it, so it's been very important in the chronic fatigue syndrome community to say this is not just a psychological condition. At the same time, as somebody who's been interested in disability studies, it's terrible to say, well, one condition is better than the other. Really, I would just say one is more stigmatized than the other, and therefore we want to avoid it. Yeah, I, 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 that, that sounds right to me. Um, what is interesting to me is uh, I'm, I've wondered, you know, for a while, I've never talked to any evolutionary psychologist about this, but pain, obviously, uh, when you have a pain syndrome, pain is one of the greatest teachers for animals that there is. We, 
we learn a lot about how to navigate our world by pain. Um, have you ever talked to any anybody who's thought why, what's the, why fatigue? What do we learn from fatigue? We learn to go to sleep usually, which is you know mysterious and important. Right. Um, but uh, what 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 could we possibly be telling? What could our body be telling us with fatigue? Well, I I don't think we are tired in order to about for our bodies to tell us something, but I think. It's one way in which fatigue has been trivialized. We say pain and suffering. We never say fatigue and suffering. We never say pain and fatigue and suffering. And so what we're really saying about pain and other terrible calamities that happen is that they can teach us something. I think many people think that um, all kinds of suffering can teach us something. So if we did not see um, fatigue as being so trivial, I think we also could say that there is there are lessons that people do learn. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about now about the um, the history of fatigue. Um, let's and I, I mentioned neurasthenia first. So this is we're beginning sort of um, we're beginning. This is a modern history of mm-hmm. fatigue. Um, if you wanted to, you could have gone back to I'm sure Galen right. or even before was encountering very interesting types of fatigue. I know they exist in the Middle Ages. I was thinking of the sickness unto death, which is often fatigue. I'm thinking of one of the seven deadly sins, acidia, uh, uh, acidia, depends on how you want to pronounce yeah. it, which is depression, tired. It's difficult to say what it is. Um, it, may, it might be depression or it might be some kind of fatigue. Um, but you're starting in the late 19th century, uh, 1850s onward. And neurasthenia, as I said, becomes a fashionable condition. It's called a condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it and who has it? Because interesting people have it. <laughs> you know, who knows what neurasthenia <laughs> is since it's a, it's a diagnosis that's gone out of, out of fashion. And in fact, a lot of that was one way that a lot of um, observers put down chronic fatigue syndrome. They said, oh, this is just neurasthenia come back. They say it's chronic fatigue syndrome, it's really neurasthenia, and we've shown that there is not something called um, neurasthenia. The title began in 1869 when a neurologist identified something he called neurasthenia, and people with neurasthenia had a lot of different symptoms, but fatigue was always a, a predominant one. And he can... He, he thought it was really something that afflicted brain workers more than manual workers. So that's one reason it became sort of fashionable. You can say, aha, you know, I'm a brain worker. I've used my brain too much. And um, and very a lot of very famous people had it or were diagnosed with it or believed they um, Yeah, so Charlotte Perkins Gilman, anyone who's taken a a feminist literature course or or history of American feminism knows that. And that probably had led me to think of this is something terrible being inflicted by the medical establishment on women. I never put it together. Maybe it wasn't used. I never realized, oh, yes, William James also had it. Um, Teddy Roosevelt was believed to, you know, I I don't know if he thought so, had it. Uh, His pal, Owen Wister. Uh, that's why he went to Wyoming or out right. west, you know, from Philadelphia, where the list is the list goes on and on. Um, William James is interesting since he has it. How did he dis- do? You recall how he describes it and how he, di- did he di- does he diagnose himself? 
were there? You know, I don't know. Although, um, um, you, you know, getting back to Charlotte Perkins Gilman, it is a staple. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. you've taken feminist literature. It is a staple in the feminist literature canon. She, even she admitted it was somewhat of a caricature. And um, feminists always saw it as something that terrible that, it, that happened to women. And of course, um, Virginia Woolf also parried it. But um, uh, oh, uh, the rest cure, you know, the rest actually was something that he, um, he suggested that he recommended for soldiers after the Civil War. It was not something he foisted on women, although that's sort of the way we've all seen it. Yeah. So can you, can you describe the rest cure? Because it's rather dramatic and it's, I would even describe it as authoritarian and, and total. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's approach. You know, I don't really know what the rescue was like, but I don't think it was as authoritarian and total as, as um, you get, you know, you know, that's what, that's how Charlotte Perkins Gilman described it. But I don't think it was, you know, I think it probably had many different manifestations and um, I, I know some people really hated it, and it, Virginia Woolf certainly hated it, and it was one reason why she had this character, Septimus Smith, and she has him commit suicide before he, he because he's so afraid he will be subjected to a rescue. Well, so, and so what is the rescue is when you just stay in, is that complete bed, an utter bed no, rest? No, I don't think it was always utter bed, bed rest, but I think a lot of stimulation was taken away from you. And what, what Virginia Woolf hated was the, the way she felt human, the way she felt herself was to write, and she was encouraged not to write, not to think, and that was just deadly for her. So... What's the uh, where 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 what's the sort of next? Um, these are all different ways of contextualizing fatigue or tiredness. I don't know what else what else to call it. So where would what would be the next bead on the historical string? Yeah, let me say there is no. Um, it, I sort of went. I, what I was trying to say was that different kinds of fatigue or different labels of fatigue seem to have emerged at different times. So there was neurasthenia. And that was for brain workers, pretty um, upper class people. And then people start talking about industrial fatigue, which was what workers were supposed to experience. And um, that was actually sort of helpful for workers because they could, because um, the progressive reformers could say um, that, you know, they needed shorter working hours, they needed really to, um, to have more rest periods. And so, it it really um, it it really uh, turned attention to employment conditions, which was good in some ways. Although it also saw workers as um, as machines who lost energy, like machines. Well, well and, and we'll get to that. Uh, there's a there's a way in which um, that applies to sort of br modern brain workers as well. well. Actually, more than a way. It applies to modern brain workers as well. But I, I was fascinated. I mean, we, we touched on this class divide, but we'll, and we'll get, come back to that. Also, the entire sort of movement of identifying identifying stress mm -hmm. and sort of the the stress about stress. Uh, could you describe that? Because uh, that that was a, that's a fascinating episode. I, I guess that 
last you described a, a time article from 1983 of course it was going on for long yes it was that. going on before that it was after world war ii but suddenly it became really fashionable fashionable by the early 1980s for for people to say they were stressed and nobody really knows what stress is that is one problem with it um although some people have identified some biological manifestations of it. Um, but it, I think people started stopped talking about fatigue and they started talking about stress and burnout instead. And one problem with that is stress is something always seen as something that individuals can conquer on their own. So we have all of these stress management programs, which I'm sure help people, um, but they're not enough often. I remember from, I mean, this is a very Gen X thing. I realized that I don't think anyone, millennials don't say, don't stress me out, or I'm so stressed. This is something that identifies Gen Xers. I was just thinking about, I was reading your book, uh, stress tabs, very popular in the 1980s. They were just multivitamins. Oh, yes. And the, and, and they, they were, but they were stress tabs. You took them to avoid stress. Mm -hmm. And the c commercials was a candle burning at both ends. Huh. You know, literally burning yes, out. Yes, yes, um, We could we could keep on going with that, but mm -hmm. it was definitely part of you know my childhood is the uh, stress right. and bur and and burnout and all the rest of the uh, rest of it. Um, so we mentioned the class divides. Did we say something more about that? Because this is a yes. fascinating. Uh, as we get to as we get to as we get to, to sort of solutions to to fatigue, we get even more deeper into class divides. Yes. Well. Um... Um, stress was seen originally in, um, well, not originally, but in the 1980s, there was a famous book by some cardiologists who warned that men who were in high positions were going to um, get heart attacks because they were too stressed. And so women were supposed to safeguard their husbands and make sure they were not too stressed. Subsequently, of course, sociologists, psychologists have learned that there's much more stress in lower level occupations than there is uh, among CEOs. And that is really where there is more stress, um, racism, poverty, conditions like that can produce stress. It's not just high, high level executives. Right. And it's, um, I, I know I should emphasize again too the way that, um, that we're discussing about, as you said, about stress, the way that there's a continual theme is where social problems become personal problems. Um, and the this leads us very nicely into the next sort of discussing the solutions because it's sort of back to stress mm -hmm. tabs. Take a pill. Mm -hmm. You take a pill. Um, the company doesn't have to change. University doesn't have to change. Right. You can change. Right, right. And we've done that with all sorts of things. I mean, I had looked at it with... Um, Caregiving for elderly relatives, which was a subject I was really interested in for a while, actually am again. And um, suddenly everybody started talking about caregiving in terms of stress. And um, that has also meant that, that people who are caring for elderly relatives are under tremendous stress, of course. But part of it, I mean, part of it is just taking care of somebody who is really ill or somebody who is deteriorating or somebody who might die. 
But part of the problem is is social and economic, that people um, people have to drop out. People, I mean, women mostly have to drop out of the workforce. There aren't ample services. The institutions are terrible. Um, we could go on and on. So there really are really serious social and economic problems um, that caregivers face, and it's all been what they're they. Over and over, they're told, go to safeguard your stress. Go to a stress management. Here's how to take care of your stress. And that helps because people are under tremendous stress. But it means that there, it, it, it sort of detracts attention from all of these social and economic conditions, which I would say the Biden administration finally has recognized. Um, it finally is saying we need something, not just for caregivers of children, but caregivers of the elderly. A tiny step, I would say, but it's good. Well, let's talk about rest, which um, could be an entire book by itself. And that would actually be a very interesting book. Um, you begin with a quote from Rabbi Heschel uh, uh, about the Sabbath and then go on to show how Basically, even I mean, what's what's fascinating to me is that there was a strand of, of Sabbatarianism, a very strong strand, strand of, of Sabbatarianism in American religious life for hundreds of years. And then it uh, vanished, disapparated, fell off a cliff um, because we don't have exactly a Sabbatarian, an approach to rest. Uh, of the kind that Heschel or Sabbatarian Protestants uh, emphasized, um, that in a way work prepares us for rest. Mm -hmm. No, they were, people saw rest in terms of productivity. So um, workers had to have certain kinds of, they couldn't be allowed to do whatever they wanted in their free time because they really had to prepare to be back in the workforce and um, submitted to those conditions. And um, there was something called battle fatigue, which fascinated me because it was a condition um, in World War II. It was probably, you know, we now would call it PTSD or shell shock. But they didn't want a psychological uh, uh, term. They really wanted something that could be cured really quickly. So we, we say instead of productivity, they, they really want men to get back to the workforce. That's what that kind of rest was for. So I was just saying that we have seen rest constantly as something that fits us back for the workforce instead of what Heschel and others were saying, you know, the Sabbath is a very, could be, should be a very different day. It's not, it's not to prepare for work. It's really to get in touch with all sorts of other things. And now we have something called, I mean, we see all the time these headlines that say leisure is the new productivity. And what they're telling executives is, yes, you need to rest because you are high thinkers and you, your brain can work better if you take risks, but don't see it as frivolous, see it as something that will make you more creative, better able to um, take care of other people. It's interesting because um, the emphasis has been for at least 140 years in American thinking about American work, the emphasis has been actually been on, I noticed that, 
it's been on productivity and not creativity. So the change to tell mm-hmm. executives to to stop and be creative is an interesting change. Um, it's to my mind, I mean, to go back to Heschel, uh, I would love to, I probably should have a separate podcast about this. There's a way in which, um, of course, Heschel understands Genesis 3. The whole message is there's work is a curse. By the sweat of your brow, you will gain your bread. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the, the earth that you are going to labor with, it will turn against you. It will grow into weeds. There's a curse. Yet, of course, the first chapter of Genesis is about is about work. It's about create, but it's about creativity. Mm-hmm. It's about creation. It's about yeah. And then, but then there's a switch. Work sours under the curse. Work becomes mm-hmm. you know. But there's that one moment on the seventh day where you can appreciate creativity. You can appreciate creation, not productivity. But the emphasis on productivity is not about creativity. I, I think the the modern emphasis on creativity is not really about creativity either. It's about productivity too. Right. Um, it's about you know newer and better powerpoints or something. Yes, um, yes. It's about that, uh, and it's interesting. You know, um, you are too kind to higher education. I have to say, since the beginning of the research, I, I, in many ways, the research. Uh, university in which you worked, in which I was schooled, is one of the last great 19th century industrial factories. Right. And, you know, Max Weber, his criticism of, of American institutions always was, and talked about this with John Zimmerman in a previous podcast, um, too much teaching, not enough productivity, got to produce, 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 produce. Um, sort of sounds like a little bit more like Charlie Chaplin in modern times than most professors like to think of themselves as. Um, and certainly when we talk about productive members of a department, we know they, they have produced more widgets. Um, and that we sort of gets at the, some widgets. Of, <laughs> yeah, widgets. I just, it's a, whatever department it is, they, different mm-hmm. departments have different things. It's, it's called a widget. Um, so there's, um, it's not about being creative. It's about being productive. Right. Except that. Some academics see their work as highly creative. And I think academics... Fortunately. (laughs) I I think it's fortunate. Some are. Some can do that. Some some have their creativity aligned with their jobs. And that's, that's, that's really a luxury. It's a wonderful thing if people can do that. Um, But the problem is, as you say, what happens then is they're in a department and the department counts their books. They don't, they, they, they're not struck by the creative ideas. In fact, if they were struck by creative ideas, they would tell people to slow down. There's a whole new um, emphasis. Actually, my sister was co-editor of a book called Slow Sociology, which was really about how sociology how so? It was about sociologists who had taken time off in the middle of their projects, um, sometimes because they were raising children, sometimes because they were sick, for a variety of reasons. And when they got back to the projects, it, they were much better. And um, but under under the university now, you're not allowed to do that. You just have to produce one article after another, one book after another. I just think of a, a, a friend, a former colleague of mine who um, 
Well, I mean, this is, he's very casual about it. He just brought three sort of legal file folders of stuff from his back of his garage, just dropped in front of the tenure committee. <laughs> um, other, other other people brought in, you know, binder after binder and stuff like that. But I thought in both cases, it got to like, this is the product. This is what I have produced. Yeah. Um, here, there's a books, so books and articles. Take a look. Um, but let me say, okay. um, I would say that fatigue enters into this, into the academic profession, because academics yeah. can't, you, you know, we can't say we get more money. We can't say we have higher status anymore. What academics do is brag about fatigue. And what they're saying is yes. everybody asks me to do things. I, oh, I'm flying off to Geneva now. I have 30 graduate students who are waiting for me to read their dissertations. Um, I, uh, you know, I have to, somebody asked me to be the keynote speaker of a conference. So I think we brag about fatigue as a way of bragging about other that's right. things. And also it's a, there's a, there's a self-consciousness that the fact that our work is done sitting down mm -hmm. um, that, uh, and, and, I would always, I never could resist saying when someone would, and I, I would want to do, oh God, I have so many papers to grade, you know, and I have this to do and all the rest of that. Well, I, I could never resist. I tried to resist that myself. And when someone would really go on about it, I said, well, maybe we should, you should try farming, <laughs> um, which having just this morning been putting up some fence for to keep cattle back where they should be, I now feel that, uh, that admonition because uh, there, you know, there are other things that are harder. Yes. Uh, and, and and extraordinarily tiring, if not you know fatiguing. Uh, but there is there is a way we we this this is also a part of rest. It's also related to academia, in the in the fact that any moment you're resting, and this is this happens to you as a graduate student. Um, it's Saturday afternoon. Why am I not working on my dissertation? Right. You know, it's Sunday night. Why am I not working on my mm -hmm. dissertation? So there's always this this guilt mm -hmm. that you're not. You're not doing. You're not doing stuff, producing something, and that that's part of I think this conditioning about it. Yes. Um, but let's talk. Let's talk about another uh, thing that certainly students uh, of all kinds have been using, uh, probably throughout. Well, even more frequency these days is stimulants, mm -hmm. um, and various ways of stimulating. If we can't rest, we can stimulate ourselves. So, um, as I said to you in the notes, uh, it, this conversation will be uh, completely. Um, Let's start with it will be a it will be a ruined it will be awful if we don't talk about patent medicines like Radithor. Tell about Radithor. Okay, Radithor was one of the many patent medicines that there were in the 19th century. No, I'm sorry, in the early 20th century, and they were widely uh, advertised, widely advertised, and they would everybody was told this will cure you. And they um, now we know they had some really dangerous components, they, alcohol, um, uh, caffeine, and sometimes radium. So I want to repeat that, listeners. Radithor had radium. It was radioactive. If you thought Coca-Cola, that the two years and they actually put cocaine in Coca-Cola, you think that's something to talk about in like a quiz night at the pub? Radithor had radioactive substances in it. It's, and the guy who, who, who invented it died of radiation yes, poisoning. Yes, it, it actually, so he, actually the, um, it went out of use when there was a New York socialite, a woman, 
who died a really terrible, long, lingering death. And then they thought, oh, well, maybe this isn't so good. Um, but I think it's just an ex it, it's, it just shows in a sort of exaggerated form how dangerous a lot of these patent medicines were, how widely distributed they it's, were. Yeah, it's, but it's interesting to think about. I mean, I, I'm a little obsessed sometimes with uh, soft drinks, partly because as a Southern historian, Coca-Cola, 7-Up, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, all of them are products of the South. And that, that has a lot to do with the temperance movement. Um, but if you look at where they're from, I also suspect uh, it has a lot to do with productivity. Um, mm -hmm. They're all st they're stimulants. They're pick-me-ups. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, uh, up through, you know, uh, probably up into the 80s, people, if you were cold, you still, people wanted you to have a little alcohol, have a little mm -hmm. nip. You know, um, my beloved grandfather, until he died in 1972, he took a shot of whiskey uh, every morning after he came down to mm -hmm. downstairs. That was sort of, uh, it was, uh, that was medicinal. Um, he had been born in 1894. And of course, everyone knew that it was medicinal. Uh, so all these stimulants, like Radithor is an extreme mm -hmm. example, but Coca-Cola, 7-Up, Dr. Pepper, they're all stimulants to, or nerve tonics, even they're you know they're uh, moxie i think was was advertised as a nerve tonic right they are and but what i'd like to say about all of them is that um one problem i think with them is not just the harm that they can cause and we know that sometimes they can but it makes people think that fatigue is always an acute problem if you have fatigue get a cup of coffee go do some exercise um, drink Coca-Cola or get a supplement. And the what um, it, it just means that people stop understanding that some forms of fatigue really are chronic and they do not respond to that. I mean, somebody might feel better for a few minutes, but they might not because what they have is a really chronic condition. And it's hard for people to understand because everybody gets tired. And so they say, oh, well, when I get tired, I have coffee. And I still have friends who say, oh, I just read about this new supplement that I think you should try. And it, it would be ridiculous for me to do it. So um, it's, 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 it's like giving and saying, oh, you should have five hour energy. You'll feel much better. Which, of course, the ads have said, and it, it points out the ways in which, as you say, we have never moved beyond patent medicine. Mm -hmm. As long as there are five-hour energy ads on TV or Red Bull gives you wings mm -hmm. or all the rest of this stuff, it's still patent medicine. It just has TV ads. That's the marketing's And better. it's also saying there is not such something called chronic fatigue, which, wouldn't, which really doesn't respond to some of these short-term... Um, uh, remedies. We also, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, point out that the way that you discuss Southern California as a problem, as a as a solution for fatigue, uh, something that you know you didn't work for you, <laughs> um, <laughs> but an entire two generations of Americans left the Midwest, it would seem. They all left Iowa to go to California to avoid, you know, fatigue and ennui. Right. Um, well, to avoid, first they went to um, avoid lung problems, and then they went to avoid neurasthenia. And a lot of people with lung problems like to say they had neurasthenia because it was more fashionable. Didn't mean you had tuberculosis, you weren't a worker, so 
people like that. But they didn't just come to it by themselves. Southern California had a real booster industry. And they, you know, they had signs all over. They had advertisements in mass, in journals. They did everything they could to advertise themselves. They had a sense that they really had to build up Southern California, especially Los Angeles. It's hard to remember, but it was sort of not empty then, but it didn't have an excess of people. And the boosters were trying to build it up. And so sort of like the people who um, who developed these patent medicines, they were saying, come to Los Angeles, come especially to Los Angeles, although they were boosters in many different um, Southern and Western, Western states and states. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If we could quantify American, if you could quantify the amount of brain power spent on a problem, I would think that the boost American boosterism um, is uh, for Chicago, Southern California, and Southern Florida must be worth at least ten Nobel prizes. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I mean, Americans have spent a lot of energy on coming up with sophisticated, stupid arguments for their city. Um, let's move on to discuss something that gets really interesting, and that's um, psychosomatic medicine and also the the narrative of triumphal recovery. Okay, let me say about extremely, extremely important to to me. <laughs> Since I was on the in the nineties, I think I probably the tail end of of Freudianism in many ways, uh, where you could still find a a Freudian inclined psychologist who wasn't really interested in, yeah, anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, when I talk about psychosomatic illness, I want to make it really clear that I do believe there is something called psychosomatic illness. Um, oh, yes. And there, there was actually, I looked on my bookshelf, there's a wonderful book by somebody named Suzanne O'Sullivan, and it's called, Is It All in Your Head? True Stories of Imaginary Illness. And she makes a wonderful point, which is just because it is psychosomatic doesn't mean you're not suffering. In other words, she says, um, you know, respect the suffering of people who do have psychosomatic illnesses. There is such a thing. And medical and... And, and, and it's gotten even stranger the last couple of years when they find out that... Um, even when a person knows that a panacea is a panacea, they know it's a sugar right. pill, they still get better. Right. Yeah. So this is, we're getting, we're on the cusp of some interesting sort of discussions about what all this means. Absolutely. Uh, when, when so that point. I, I really, and, and also I want to say I've been very influenced by cultural and um, anthropo uh, anthropological, um, um, I'm sorry, cultural anthropologists who have looked at, um, societies which have responded to disease in certain ways. So I really don't want to say everything is just biological. What I object to is people who say, if there is no medical explanation, it must be psychosomatic. And actually, there might not be a medical explanation now. There might be a medical explanation sometime later. There may never be a medical explanation, but that doesn't mean that we have to say it's psychological. Um, so I really want to be clear that I understand there is a field, it is a distinguished field, it is 
done wonders for people. I was really writing from my own background when it seemed in the 50s as if you had a stomach ache, then that meant this. If you had eczema, it meant something else. And that there was always, it, it became a certain kind of blaming, although I don't want to say that people who have psychosomatic illnesses are at fault. You know, something has happened. But Well, let's, let's take the ulcer. I mean, the ulcer was, um, you know, it, 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 up until into my adult life, the ulcer was a result of stress. I mean, it's stress, burnout, ulcer. Uh, you need to drink some milk and get some rest, right. you know, stop obsessing about work. I mean, I suspect that, and I'm sure it would be easy to find out that people, that certain guys in New York bragged about their ulcers. <laughs> uh, and like a little bit like Pestalozzi, the guys who came up with the idea that it was a bacterial infection, an infection in the gut, that was stupid, crazy Australian. I think whatever mm -hmm. it was just wrong. Right. It couldn't possibly right. be. No, people just could not accept that. Um, and lo and behold, they were right. Now, maybe it comes mm -hmm. about, maybe that like, like, like a common cold, maybe stress, environmental conditions, what's going on the rest of your body does affect whether or not you get an ulcer, but it wasn't just because you were working too right. hard. You know, I'm older than you. And so there's more of my life that I had when ulcers were caused by stress. And it's really hard for me now to remember that ulcers are not caused primarily by stress <laughs> because I associate the two. They were so, that was so ingrained in my mind that- I just turned, I just turned 52. And it's very ingrained in my head that ulcers are caused by stress. Yeah. Okay. And I must be one of the last, probably one of the last years, I would imagine. I don't think anyone who's 42 probably associates that with stress. Well, they read the but, books. You know, they read old things. They have parents who tell them. I, I think that's going to stay around for a while. But, yeah. um, but it does get you back to chronic fatigue syndrome, which for so many years people said, just get up, go exercise, get stop being depressed, stop feeling sorry for yourself. And I have a relative, a young, um, a, a young man who finished um, had was about to finish medical school when he was felled by chronic fatigue syndrome. And I was this happened a couple of years ago, and I was so happy that nobody said oh, this is psychological, just get up. People said to him, you have a real condition. It is a really hard condition to have. Here are some things that might help, but you did not bring this on yourself. Let's, um, before we stop, we need to talk about the, um, the triumph, the narrative of triumphal recovery. Um, you know, for someone who's had has depression, <laughs> yeah. uh, but is not at the time, at the moment, governed by depression. It's a very important distinction. Uh, I remember my psychiatrist saying this to me a long time ago, that you will eventually be a person who is not depressed, but you will always have depression uh, or have that inclination. Mm -hmm. And so I would, you would say for whatever it's worth, and now you might say that depression is in, my depression is in remission. Mm -hmm. I, I don't even know what that means for it. It's since we're using, it's sort of a misapplying a metaphor. Um, but at the same time, I have no triumphal narrative of recovery. There's no, there is no ticker tape parade. The boys aren't home from the war. 
the war is always there will always be searchlights you know scanning the no man's right, land right and and um and you have the same situation with chronic fatigue right and it will be very hard for you to write a novel about depression because it would have no narrative arc it wouldn't you know you wouldn't talk about being depressed and then oh lo and behold you got a little less depressed less depressed and you were triumphant you would work so hard on not being depressed and that would make it really difficult to, to tell tell yeah. your story that way. And yet we all think of, um, we all just assume that um, that conditions should, should resolve. And we want our conditions to resolve. Of course we do. But we're getting a good lesson now with long COVID. You know, we've had this triumph. We've had this, um, this vaccine. And yet there are people who have, who, whose conditions do not resolve. And we don't know why that is, but it's quite clear that it it exists. I actually have a son-in-law who um, finally did does feel better, but he was very sick for seven months. And the only way he could get any support was to go online and find other people. But people now with long COVID are having a really difficult time because everybody wants to think there's this vaccine, there's a solution. We're going to conquer this COVID. Well, it, it might very well be. So you, you give polio as sort of the um, the the narrative of triumphal right. success. I remember my, my father-in-law describing what it was like to get the first polio vaccine in his small town in Ohio, you know, getting the sugar cube. He said it was like church. You know, it was everyone getting the host, you know, and there are hundreds of people there and everyone was so quiet so quiet and worshipful and because the plague was it was over mm -hmm. um yet my you know my father worked with someone who had gotten polio like in the last year of polio and could never go up steps mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh so that we had the lingering after effect that was long polio mm -hmm. that was now those people are gone that, now those people are gone. No, not really. You know, that was because a lot. No, no, a lot of people who had polio as children and have triumphal stories. In fact, some of them have written memoirs. Unfortunately, there's something called um, I can't remember what it's called, but it comes back in some form, not as terribly as it was, but some people are starting to lose lose some of their functions. So that's really hard. So it is long COVID. I will tell you that because I grew up when there were these polio epidemics, when I would see my yeah. child get a, get a, you know, something that was going to stop polio, I would say to myself, medicine is really the most wonderful thing in the world, <laughs> which of course it is in some sense. Um, it, it is, but, um, and I'm glad none of my children had polio, and I'm glad we almost vanquished it in the world. And yet, and I'm glad I don't have smallpox right. because I, right. I, I'm like the last. I think I was born in '69, so I'm like my sister, born in '71, didn't get a smallpox smallpox jab, uh, which is quite that's quite a transition in two years. Yes. yes. Um, and and the, of course, the more I read about the 18th century, uh, which you know is my day job, as it were. Um, the more I'm thankful that we don't have smallpox. <laughs> yeah. But but not all illnesses are like that. Right. That's, and, that's and the that's message. And that's hard for us to accept. 
yeah, that's hard for us to accept. Uh, could you describe this uh, as we close up this uh, concept, this um, idiosyncratic suffering? I um, I love this idea um, of idiosyncratic suffering. That suffering uh, can't be explained on Moss. Mm-hmm. It is something that ultimately, you know, Emily Abel and Al Zambone. We it's idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it it. It's true. I think it it recognizes that we don't, there's an awful lot we don't know about bodies. And we, just because we say, oh, there's no medical explanation, doesn't mean that there isn't some explanation. (laughs) Bodies really are idios. I mean, there is a lot of idiosyncrasy that we don't recognize and that doctors sometimes ignore. Um, Let's close up by... um where you close up, um, you return to some of the, at the end of your book, you return to some of its themes, but um, I'm, I'm, you have this phrase, the disparage, disparagement of subjective knowledge. Um, that's referring to the way, well, what's that referring okay, to? Referring and how does that relate to the rest of the rest of your the rest of yeah. the sort of the story that you're telling about the history of fatigue? It really means that, People think you don't have something if they can't see it. If if you say to somebody, I'm depressed, let me tell you that. And they say, well, you can't be depressed. You are um, doing a radio show. Um, it, it, you, how could that be the case? Um, and as a medical historian, I know that um, in the 19th century, doctors paid much more attention because they had to, to people's... Um, uh, society and their personalities. And I'm not the only person who says now that doctors have gotten much too, you know, this, there are so many complaints about doctors who are impersonal, which really means they aren't listening to people's telling the stories of their bodies. So I tried to explain to a lot of doctors what it was like to have this fatigue. And they would send me for a blood test, but it turns out blood tests um, can tell what can tell what a fatigue, the cause of a fatigue in about 5% of the cases. Really, what I needed was somebody to listen to me and validate oh, yeah. what, it, what it was. And part of the problem mm-hmm. that people with fatigue and pain, depression have, is that nobody can see it. It's hard to explain it. And yet doctors have to listen. And... Um, you know, we have insurance companies that are insisting that doctors have five-minute sessions and they can't listen. But there is also a whole trend in medicine that is saying it's become much too impersonal. Um, doctors should learn more about the humanities. There's even a, a branch called narrative medicine, which is very exciting, which is teaching doctors really how to listen to patients in very deep ways. So it's not all bad. It's not all denigration of, of, um, of subjective knowledge, but um, we have a long way to go. Well, my guest today has been Emily Abel. She is author of Sick and Tired, An Intimate History of Fatigue, which is published by the University of North Carolina Press. Emily Abel, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. 
For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.